This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. This week on the podcast, a returning guest. We haven't had enough of him yet. Joshua Pesquet, the vice president of technology strategy at Roundtable Technology, and also the professor of cybersecurity courses for Whole Whale. How's it going, Josh? It is going great, George. It is great to be here. Always good to work with Whole Whale and great to talk to you. Well, we dragged you back on because there is more privacy stuff to talk about. You are our cybersecurity professor, and we, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to do that course and, and share your best knowledge. And you know what's wild to me? It's like not that long ago that you recorded it, and the recent changes that we'll be talking about today uh, with California state and New York state laws going up and around privacy uh, have like, I just, I feel like it's a new landscape, and it's not that long ago. No, it is, it is not that long ago. And doing that course with, with Whole Whale, which, which we kind of did around uh, when GDPR was, was happening, was such a great experience. The, your, your team was so terrific to work with. And that course has kind of lived on. I'm, I'm now doing a full-day course here in, in New York at a great place called Civic Hall. And I've been able to repurpose a lot of that to lots of other places. So that, that's been great. And at that time, it was all focused on GDPR and implications for organizations that were dealing with EU citizens or data of EU citizens. There's articles now, one one that I'll, that I'll reference later called Here Come the Clones, which is now lots of states like California, New York, and lots of others across the United States are developing GDPR-like laws themselves, and they are going into effect, and people are freaking out. Yeah. So let's take a step back. We've gone. We're going to go super geeky uh, and all over the map. But what to start is GDPR, and and when was it enacted? Yeah. So GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, and it it really didn't change the law as much as everybody thinks it did in Europe. It added massive fines to a law that was already there which got everybody's attention in a big way. And that happened in May of 2018. And in Europe, it, it was huge for many years leading up to that. The United States was a little late catching, catching up to the party. And that is what GDPR is. And essentially, it protects the privacy of individuals around what data companies are keeping on them and what they can do with that data. So it's really great for individuals, because I think everybody probably feels the same way, which is that our data is all over the place and people are trading it and sharing it and exposing it accidentally and getting it stolen. And we're really tired of it. So that's great that there's a law to protect us. But on the other side, nonprofits who want to attract donors and volunteers and constituents and get people to subscribe to their newsletters, on the other side of that and need to respect the privacy of all of those people. So that that's the real challenge. And it's especially tough in a landscape where we're being handed very, very powerful marketing and tracking tools. Uh, like literally, I, I can say Whole Whale actually creates one of these 
And we have to be careful because you're one click away from violating, you know, GDPR if you do it in the wrong way. And now what we're going to be talking about today are, are sort of the like, here come the clones comment. But the U.S., not to be left behind, is like, hey, wait a minute. We want to be like the cool kids. And the cool kids always start in California and New York. So let's now say in this ecosystem, the first domino to fall, you know, earlier in the privacy updating internet-wide, GDPR is there. Now it seems like states are looking at this and being like, we need some of that and we need to put our own flavor on it. So how did the dominoes start to fall in the U.S.? They're starting to fall already, but it's going to change a lot, and it's very hard to predict how that's going to change. And we'll probably cover later you know, what, what's going to happen on the federal side is they're going to wind up being a federal law that's going to supersede. But let's start, George, with California and the California Consumer Protection Act, or CCPA, which I got – tons of questions about over the last couple of years as that started to become public. And I kept having to tell all the nonprofits that kept asking me, it's not for you. Uh, so first thing to say for everybody listening to this, the if you are worried about CCPA, it doesn't apply to nonprofits unless that nonprofit controls or is controlled by a for-profit business that shares the same branding. So George, if, if wholewhale.com, uh, you know, owned a nonprofit, wholewhale.org, then yes, that would apply uh, to, to you. But even then, only if you were fortunate enough that wholewhale.com was greater than a $25 million company. So I, unless your nonprofit, apologies for the uh, sirens going by, they'll fade in a second, unless your nonprofit is a, controlled by or controls a for-profit business more than $25 million, CCPA is not something you have to worry about. What if I deal with health information or information of minors under 17 or under 13? That I'm less familiar with, George, and I, I don't know uh, in terms of those rules, so I apologize for that. That's okay. Uh, I, I mean, it's the COPPA stuff, right? We were already familiar with, which is, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't collect it. Um, and definitely if you're dealing with minors, you have to get parental permission. But does it put any more penalties that could potentially be levied on nonprofits or does it sort of fall under that macro as long as you're not owned by that for-profit you're kind of okay to my best understanding of ccpa is it didn't change anything around the fines for hipaa non-compliance or the protection of minors that stayed the same under ccpa but i would definitely want to review that further before giving anybody advice yeah. via this. so now new york turns around and says wait a minute if california is correct correcting uh, and collecting and protecting, we get a we get a step up our game. So what did New York do? New York put in place something called the New York SHIELD Act. SHIELD here stands for the wonderfully forced acronym Stop Hacks and Improve Electronic Security. I'm sure the, uh, the focus groups went around and around with that one for a while. And New York State SHIELD does apply to nonprofits. There is no exclusion for nonprofits in the New York State uh, Shield Act. And that went into law in New York in October of 2019, so just last month. But there's a grace period for enforcement and organizations having to put in place the protections that, that are there, the practices that, that New York State Shield asks you to do until March of 2020. Not a ton of time 
to get that uh, in place. And it's similar but different to GDPR and CCPA, but all of these laws are have a, have a lot of things in common around being focused on protecting personal information of individuals. So if you replace personal information of EU citizens with New York residents, that in a nutshell is the New York State Shield Act. The big scary thing with New York State Shield, much like with GDPR, are the fines that are there. With GDPR, it was 4% of operating revenue or I believe it was 4 billion euro or something like whatever was larger, like this ridiculous. Yeah. You remember, George, it was a 4 million euro or 4 billion euro. I yeah, the, like the cap is absurd on it. And it, um, I don't, I don't recall, actually, I should recall. That was yeah, too long ago. Yeah, 4% or 4, I want to say 4 billion euro, whatever's bigger, were like the, the caps on the penalties. So, so that, you know, scared the crap out of everybody with, uh, am I allowed to say uh, crap on the, on the, on the whole uh, world? Only if you say it three times. Okay. <laughs> so you have one more. You have one more C word to to go through. <laughs> it drops. And with New York State Shield, it's it's a little bit harder to parse because it's it's essentially a seven hundred and fifty dollar per breach or per violation, which could be a lot of different things. The way I've encouraged organizations to think about it is that if you, let's say, had a data breach, and you expose the information of a thousand constituents, their names, emails, phone numbers, home addresses, whatever personal information you had, and you failed to notify those folks within 72 hours of you learning about that breach, well, that would be a violation of New York State Shield Act. You would be subject potentially to $750,000 in penalties. That's the liability you might be looking at. Uh, and that's one way to kind of think about the exposure there. Yeah, and uh, I think let's move this toward practical moments and uh, some of the the elements. And it's super helpful to say, oh, I get it. It's swipe out GDPR, put in Shield. So other elements here are the right to be forgotten, where someone, hey, I gave you, let's say, my email. Hey, I really don't want you to email me, mail me, do anything like this before. Like, I want to unsubscribe from like your face. Yep. What what does well, that now look like under Shield? Under it's very similar, and I and and this is the thing. Like I get I get asked this a lot. I was on a, a panel just last week. There was a nonprofit summit in New York hosted by by this giant firm BDO that was mostly for finance folks, and this question was coming up in in ten different ways, which is you know with all these different laws coming, what do we pay attention to? I would, I would encourage everybody to kind of take a pause and say there's some really basic things about all of these privacy laws that are in common and, and I don't see changing. And that is, number one, before you collect information, before I take information from you, George, if you visit Roundtable's website, I need to get your consent. I need to, you know, and that's the cookie banners and things, which we may talk about or what that's about, but I have to get consent before I get your information. I also have to know what I'm doing with your information when I collect it. I have to know what systems it winds up in my organization. If you ask me what information I'm keeping on you, George, I have to be able to tell you the information that I have. I have your name, I have your phone number, I have your email address. I have to tell you who I've shared it with. <laughs> so I gave it to Google, I gave it to you know, uh, MailChimp. Uh, and as you said, the right to be forgotten. If you say, Josh, 
I want you to stop sending me stuff and I want to delete all my information. I have to be able to do that. If you revoke your consent, you have to be able to revoke your consent at any time. Uh, I, I don't know how, if we're going to get in trouble, if we talk about, you know, sex on the podcast, George, but I, I sometimes encourage organizations to that magic word consent. You know, it's really important as this comes up on college campuses around, you know, a, a lot of challenges there. And it's like, you can say, hey, Josh, it's okay for you to have my information now. And then 10 minutes, revoke that consent. You have the right to do that. And I do not have the right to ignore that. And that's an important step. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is the, the permissioning levels of any amount of data that you request. So what I'm seeing is on user experience, I enter a website and... I'm a New York citizen. I'm a, I'm a New York resident, I should say. Although it does feel like a citizen at this point with the way we're federalizing <laughs> the freaking internet. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dues-paying citizen with, uh, with my passport to travel between the United States online. And if I go to a site as a New Yorker, what will happen then is I technically, if I go to any website and they don't uh, ask for permission for cookies for basic things like Google Analytics, which is on you know 98% of websites. If I don't get that cookie banner, technically I'm in violation of Shield. Is that a factually accurate statement? It might be a factually accurate. Like that's where this stuff gets a little tricky because it depends again on what what information you are collecting when that person visits your site. So if I on my web, you know, and and so so I don't mean to get all parsing this down, but if I was willing on my website to disconnect Google Analytics from my site and replace it with nothing that was collecting analytics. If I didn't have my website on WordPress or Squarespace or Wix or any other hosting platform that places cookies, if I wasn't embedding any content from Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, if I basically if you visited my site and nothing captured any information from your browser, you know, didn't place cookies on your browser, didn't do any, then I, I there's nothing I need consent for because I actually haven't gathered information or placed a cookie on your browser that's going to collect information. But pretty much every website in the world is going to do that. And so, yes, you'd, you'd have to, you know, have a consent form there or you'd be in violation. And, and this is one of the things like with GDPR that, that you got a lot of different advice out there because people say, well, I don't, we don't serve anyone in the European Union. We don't have offices in the European Union. But if you have a website, as you point out, George, someone from anywhere in the world can visit it. So if you know New Zealand wants to make some crazy privacy law, you know I can't really guarantee that someone from New Zealand isn't going to visit my website, and I'm not going to wind up in violation of New Zealand's crazy privacy law. That's the internet's a weird thing that way. Yeah, and what's happening with the uh, state by state? I was joking about the sort of passport for New York, but in many ways, this is a minority rule effect, meaning that whatever the most stringent state requirements are, effectively means as a developer, we need to consider that nationwide. We can certainly look at you know geofencing things, but nothing's perfect. And by the way. It just takes one angry, I don't know, litigious New Yorker, not that there's many of those around. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. To, yeah. call, to call issue to this. And looking at the number of slap suits, looking at the, the number of exposure for bills being written by, you know, frankly, I think there were many, many holes in the GDPR 
laws. I like the direction of it, but the as a technologist, the devil's in the details, and I see a lot of holes in this. Oh, sure. And and a lot of it, we again, we're going to just have to see how this plays out. But one, you know, if I if I take off my, you know, digital privacy hat and I'll put on my my cybersecurity, uh, you know, professor uh, uh, patched, you know, el elbows and everything and and say that if you think about your, your threat model, if you're not familiar with that term, it's like, what are the the threats to digital information at my organization, you know, in terms of what bad things could happen to our systems, to our information that, that would disrupt our services, cost us a lot of money, damage our reputation. Uh, that's a threat model. Incorporate into your threat model issues around this privacy. So one of these that, that I'm concerned about, honestly, is something called like a data subject access request, which is something that, you know, you could, George, come to a roundtable and say, hey, I just want to submit a data subject. I want you to tell me what information you have on me if you shared that can take anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars per request, depending on how robust your systems are and how many things you're doing. So if I wanted to really attack a nonprofit, I could get a thousand New York state uh, litigious folks like you were suggesting, George, and maybe have them all go visit the nonprofit's website and then all submit DSR, uh, you know, D DSAR requests in you know, on the other side of cybersecurity, there's just something called the DDoS attacker, distributed denial of service, where you can take a website offline by hammering it with millions or billions of, of requests for the for the page, and the the website essentially becomes un, non-functioning to you know legitimate people who want to use it. This could be a data privacy version of a DDoS, and that that's something I I, I haven't seen it. I, I'm not aware of anybody doing that, but that's that's one risk. The other thing is you could do that on the class action legal side. So someone could get a thousand New Yorkers, have them go visit a site, submit the DSARs when the nonprofit can't comply with it, they can sue them for $750,000 uh, against using that legislation. And, and these potential problems become part of your threat model. Like how worried are we about this happening? What protections can we put in place to, to mitigate against that? And, and we'll probably get into some of that as, as we go through. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Yeah, and it's the kind of stuff that makes me want to tear my hair out a little bit. And frankly, if you deal, and you know who you are, if you're dealing with uh, hot button issues, the things that trolls will go after, this is a threat model element. This is making sure your insurance is in place uh, and potentially automating some of these systems. One of the, you know, for, for most of the folks listening, the standard place is just making sure that as a catch-all, just be human on your privacy policy and have a, hey, if you need us to do something with regard to your data or checkup or whatever's going on, here's who you contact and you just pay attention to that that inbox uh, as opposed to creating like automated systems that do all this. Like this is, you know, this is just called being human to, to pull it back and like, all right, what do I need to take away from this this current hand-wringing narrative?
Yeah, and I and I don't want to be alarmist or anything. That that's absolutely not the point of going through that. And and again, I'm not aware of those threats happening yet. But it's uh, on the cybersecurity side, it's my job to think about what potential threats are out there. So when I see these privacy regulations going through and people are asking me about them, that's that's kind of a, I say, okay, that this is a bad thing that could potentially happen. The other and much easier to deal with cybersecurity element of of New York State Shield and CCPA and and other ones that we're seeing come out is that they actually include cybersecurity language explicitly in the regulations. New York State Shield, for example, basically is going to say you have to have kind of reasonable cybersecurity practices in place. And if you have a breach of data and someone takes a look and you had not done any kind of assessment ever or you did an assessment, let's say, three years ago, and there's a report that says, here's what we found, and here's our recommendations, and you haven't implemented a single one of them in three years, you're not going to be in very good standing. And you mentioned before, George, cyber liability insurance. That's going to be one of the safeguards that organizations can put in place to protect not only against cybersecurity breaches and incidents, but against potentially data privacy uh, litigation or, or data privacy incidents, you will get a kind of assessment from your cyber insurance company. And they're going to ask you things like, have you done assessment? If you just go, yes, 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 trying to be a good soldier, and you haven't done those things, that can be a reason they can deny a claim. So be really careful about looking at what your cyber liability insurance is asking you and do those things. They're they're not as onerous as you might think. Yeah, I think that's, you know, getting back to the the practical pieces. I have a let's say right now I'm thinking, oh gosh, I have that volunteer form, I have that email newsletter box and wait a minute, do I have that like check here? Is it automatically checked? Is it not checked? How do I deal with just the basic form permissionings that you know every site has now that these laws are coming out? Yeah, this is much more in in your wheelhouse and whole whale than mine because I'm not a web designer and I don't and I don't think about that. I I would generally say like the, the advice to organizations around these data privacy laws is is just getting a handle on your data practices and and that you know could definitely start with your website and looking at do you have opt-ins defaulted, you know, anywhere on your website. If so, you've got to obviously audit it and get rid of that stuff and make sure that you're getting consent and getting it clearly before you're collecting information and going through the list again, knowing what data you are collecting, knowing where it lives, having a data map in your organization so you actually know where data goes through, knowing who you're sharing it with, knowing what those organizations are doing with it. And some other things about not collecting information that you don't need. This is another difference uh, with the New York State Shield Law, at least from other things that I've looked at, which is they make it very explicit. Don't collect personal information you don't need and have a clear business case for and get rid of data when you no longer need it. And those are things that I'm guessing you would agree with this, George. I, I don't see that practiced in, in really any nonprofit that I've worked with recently. Yeah, the the mantra we like to go with is, you know, a couple things. Don't collect what you can't protect. And frankly, if, if you're not going to improve the user experience by collecting that data, meaning that if you're asking for something like last name, 
and you never, ever, ever use it in like the general email communications and you're only using it because you know you can append data to it through uh, a, you know, a wealth scraping engine to say, uh, that's not delivering value to that user. That is a poor signal that also you've cluttered your form. And so, uh, you know, I push you to make it as simple as possible uh, for, for sure. Uh, I do want your thoughts though, uh, Josh, on that wealth appending, right? I've got my list of emails and I want to go get all their mailing addresses and start blasting mail into their inbox uh, and also their, uh, you know, actual direct mail. Are there new legal implications to that given Shield? I don't know the answer to that well enough to to responsibly give an answer here on that, George. I'm sorry. My assumption is that that would fall into the category of, you know, to do that, you would have to be sharing that information with someone else. So the way, if if that's something you're going to do, make sure in your privacy policy that they click on that you tell them that that's something you're going to do. And the challenge with those privacy policies, as you well know, is no one reads them. So you put a privacy policy, you make someone click I agree to it before they can get to the content on your site that they so badly want to get to, right? They are desperate, George, to listen to this podcast about data privacy, but there's this pesky whole whale privacy policy that they have to agree to before they can get to this wonderful content. And they're not going to read in that that it says, oh, yeah, we're going to go well scrape with your name. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, like, right. Uh, but that's that's how you you know would cover yourself uh, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's it's certainly being formed. And I, I don't have the knowledge of Shield. But if they lifted and shifted GDPR and just rewrote Shield, technically speaking for EU citizens, you cannot take data that they've agreed to and then append data that they did not agree to. Right, it's just about that permissioning. Unless you literally went to them and say, I looked this up, can I append this information? Do you give me the approved consent to add your wealth range, your education range, your address, and to mail you? If you got permission for all that, you're good to go. So I, I've seen issues in GDPR land of that, uh, there being some examples made of organizations that did this at scale. And so if this is part of your diet, if you're a fundraiser who's, you know, basically running a play because you you stopped at a booth and you assume simply because a service is being sold to you that it is perfectly legal and fits with what you're doing, I think you should have this in the back of your mind that you're not necessarily covered anymore in this in this landscape. And you have two folks here talking about this, and we're not 100% sure. We can look it up and we can go in there. And also, even after we find the answer, and we'll put this in the show notes, and there'll be tons of notes here, the, the thing to take away is this is a confusing and growing field. The larger you are, the larger the target you have on your back, and you're going to have to reexamine your policies as they shift. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, George. And I, I think about all of this as you know risk management and trade-offs, which is there's value to doing the thing that you want to do with that data in order to get you access to, you know, higher value donors or get you some additional information that you think can benefit you in your marketing, but may not, as you said, George, bring value to the person who gave you their information. And you're going to have to weigh that against not only the ethics of what you're doing, but now the liability that you may be exposing yourself to if you're in violation of one or more of these privacy laws. 
And, you know, when, when GDPR was coming out, my advice to a lot of small and mid-sized United States nonprofits was that it's very clear if an EU citizen visits your site, you're probably going to be in violation of this, and it's going to be very hard for you not to be. But I also don't see how anyone's going to enforce a fine against you from the EU if you don't have any operations in the EU, no revenue coming from the EU. And so your risk seems to me to be minimal. Now that these laws are United States laws, that risk does not seem minimal to me. And that becomes a very different kind of risk you're taking on if you're a United States organization violating these privacy laws. So it's, it is worth you know, figuring out the answers to these questions if those are the practices you're, you're engaging in. And, and that's, the, that's the thing, finding out the answers to these questions given your organization's size, risk tolerance, assessment, insurance. And so you know, the fact that we can't just give you a blanket answer should signal something. It's annoying because you know we're in the minority rule effect, subject to the most stringent state. Essentially, is there anything on the horizon that would you know simplify this at a national level? Like, what the heck? Can't we just make this simple instead of doing it state by state, like sales tax? Yeah, there is. It's funny because at the at the panel that I was at literally last week, you know, got asked, is there any online federacy of any online legislation that, that's going through that would, that would, that would supersede some of this. And there is, there actually just on November 5th, uh, the issue and Lofgren, uh, two California Congress women uh, introduced the online privacy act. And that's the online privacy act of 2019. And that would be federal legislation, but a, this is introduced by two Democratic House representatives from California. The chances that it's going to get through the House and the Senate and then be signed into law by our current president seems to me optimistic. Would you agree with that, George? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say, statistically speaking, there are snowballs marching through the Sahara Desert with better chances. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't hold your breath. And and the the thing that the advice I've been giving and, and when I was on this, this panel last week, there were a bunch of other privacy experts there. And I say a bunch of other I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on it. I certainly dealt with it a lot. And, and I said, let me say something controversial and waited for anyone in the audience or anyone there to disagree with me. And no one did. So I'll take that for what it is. They all agreed, which is the things that we've talked about, you know, getting consent, knowing what you're collecting, knowing where it lives, knowing who you share it with it, being able to get rid of it, being able to comply with the subject access request, all that stuff. That's all stuff you should be doing. Most organizations are really far from being able to do that right now. And you could do a lot worse than to just put your head down and focus on that for the next year and ignore all of the news and noise about what's going on and just really try to make sure that you're able to do those things well, because whatever legislation winds up being the, the rule of the land, it's going to have all that in it. And, and the exact same thing on cybersecurity. I get asked every crazy question about cybersecurity, and I say, you know, do you have multi-factor authentication on your email and on your CRM and on your file sharing? No. Why don't you do that? And then come back to me and we'll talk about all these educates things that you're worried about. 
Yeah, the practical thing is treat your humans like humans. Anybody who is coming to your site, you know, you can discuss uh, per the situation whether or not you should have the accept cookies banner. But if you're collecting actual information, email and up, you know, having that consent box and you can argue checked or unchecked, but you should always have that permission uh, layer there with a link to your privacy policy. Have that policy at least reviewed by somebody. Put this in your to-do list at the board level. Uh, have that pi- privacy policy reviewed and updated uh, because there are some requirements that, that should be added. And the the higher profile you are, the higher up on your priority list this should go. And I'll add, like, make sure you're doing what your privacy policy says you're doing or at least not doing things that your privacy policy says you're not doing. <laughs> Right. Uh, Because you might write a privacy policy this year and then next year get some new uh, provider for your email marketing that actually does share the information differently than what you said in your privacy policy when you were working with your current one. So make sure that you're consistent with what that privacy policy, because that's the worst. If you had a privacy policy out there that this is what we're doing and you're actively doing something different than that, sharing information more broadly, collecting information more broadly, that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah, I mean, just to make it very clear, like if you've added the Facebook pixel, you needed to update your privacy policy. You know, as soon as you update anything that's adding tracking, if you're a HubSpot user, you need to update that privacy policy. It's really fun. It's a really fun time for technology and security. It's, you <laughs> well, know, it's good. Is, yeah. Here's the fun take on this. Like, this is all like such bummer stuff. But I, 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 I I've been saying bummed. this for, for a long time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it here because everybody's bummed out about it. Listen, this is stuff that as nonprofits are in total alignment with our values, right? We value individual privacy. We value respecting people's information and being good stewards of people's information. These laws are forcing or scaring us into doing things that we should have been doing already and should want to do because we should be protecting and caring about the privacy of the individuals who we work with, who donate money to us, who volunteer for us, who we serve. That is a value that we should hold very deeply. And these laws are making us do that. On the cybersecurity side, I can't think of any organization that hasn't been saying for 10 years, you know, we should really be getting a handle on our cybersecurity, doing more things there. Well, these laws are going to make us do that. So it's almost like, you know, if we've all been, you know, maybe 10 pounds heavier than we wanted to be and huffing a little bit, going up the stairs and saying, I really should get to the gym. Well, now there's a law saying you got to go to the gym. <laughs> I love Not that. that bad, people. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So that's my positive take on it, George. I, I, maybe it's rationalization, but I hope, I hope that was persuasive. I got to get my 10,000 steps in. Go. Law. All righty. Josh, we're going we're gonna to go into rapid fire. I, you know, I can geek out to this for quite some time and going back and forth, uh, but it's rapid fire time. Please keep your responses to around 30 seconds. Are you ready? I am ready. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Well, we've been using it for, for more than a year, but we really started using Asana this past year. And all of our client-facing people are now using Asana for the work they're doing with our clients. And internally, we're using it to manage our meetings, our projects, everything. And it has made a huge difference. 
What tech issues are you currently battling with? It's not a tech issue, unfortunately. I, I, I want... Like, I feel like I want technology to solve it, but like a lot of problems, it's probably more of a process culture, which is capacity planning. Myself and others at Roundtable, we just get overcommitted by so many projects and clients that we're working with. Being able to better predict our demand and capacity would really solve a lot of our problems of folks being a bit stressed and a bit overworked. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. In my 20s, which is the, the mid-90s, by the way, I was like a kind of hotshot IT guy at a mid-sized nonprofit here in New York, and I was super confident in my IT skills, but I had absolutely no idea how important communication change management. So I took an entire organization uh, and moved them from Windows 3 on 1, I'm really dating myself, to Windows NT on the desktop side. There, there are some nerds out there that are really excited right now, and we skipped Windows 95 entirely. From a technology standpoint, this was a really sound move, but I handled it so badly I wound up having to threaten to quit when the vice president insisted that we should roll back to Windows 95. I'm actually blushing as I'm, as I'm telling you this, George. I'm so embarrassed by how badly I handled the change management and communication aspects of that. I was just like, I'll quit. You make me do that. You should send this podcast in. That'd be great. Do you believe <laughs> Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Certainly. I mean, unfortunately, I've, I've, I've probably seen more unsuccessfully go out of business than successfully. But I, I have a friend, for example, who's working to end veteran homelessness in the state of Minnesota. And they're, they're reasonably close to doing that. If the organization achieves the mission, you know, he's on to his next challenge. So if, if you have a mission that is achievable within a lifetime and you achieve it, then great, move on to the next thing. There are you know, other challenges like you know, equality of opportunity for all people, probably not going to happen in our lifetime, uh, but, but some definitely can. If I were to put you in the hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work with Roundtable technology, what advice would you give yourself? I would get really good with data and analytics, and I would be improving my data skills at all times. And I would have learned project and change management early, which I actually did reasonably early. But what I would really do is, is practice those things, project management and change management, with discipline at all times. I, I still don't do that as consistently as I, as I should to my own detriment. What is something that you think you or your organization should stop doing? We should stop taking on work that pays well, but doesn't help us grow and doesn't provide real value to our clients. If I were to give you a Harry Potter style wand to wave across the nonprofit sector, what would it do? That is easy. I would upskill all the staff in the nonprofit industry on an ongoing basis. I see this in the corporate world a lot. You've got entire learning programs and upskilling programs for, for personnel at organizations. I want every nonprofit staff person to know data analytics, project management, code, and graphic design. They can type 80 words a minute with 1% error rate, all of it. How did you get started in the social impact sector? I, at the age of 13, living in Minnesota, visited New York City where I had relatives, uh, saw the what at that time was a quite significant homeless problem in New York, which, which is still here, and decided at age 13 that when I was old enough, I was going to move to New York and help the homeless, and that is literally what I did. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? Well, this might not be a popular answer. I, I don't like to give advice to people who didn't ask me for it. I know you asked me, George, but they didn't ask me. <laughs> so, you know, if I don't have their consent to give them advice, 
I give them advice. I, should, I, should I say something, though, George? <laughs> okay, Boomer. Bad answer, sorry. What career advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't follow? My mother told me that I would be happiest if I was doing creative work for my career. And I, I didn't really follow that advice because I, I wanted to come to New York and, and help the homeless. I think she is still a bit sad that I did not become a playwright for my career. Uh, I did, however, I will say, write a couple of plays. And if if folks in the audience Google two words, you can do this now even if you want, George. Wire, I believe the first result will be a New York Times article I about love a it. play that I did with my wife. You just cut out. Brother. What is it? It's Wire, what is it? In the Wire. Wire, the word, just two words, Wire, W-I-R-E, and Pesque. And the play was In the Wire. We did it at the New York City Fringe Festival in 2002. And get this, George. Uh, we used flash animation on stage and live action to show how an email address travels through the internet. That was what the play was about. That's the exact play I'd expect you to to write, actually. <laughs> That's perfect. Maybe you can do part part two and, and explain uh, the new state-by-state data privacy in a, in a play. I feel like there's opportunity there, for sure. <laughs> It'd be such a depressing play <laughs> Yeah, and like each each state is a different character wandering up on stage making new rules, and you just have like one poor IT director just tearing more and more hair out, and by the end it's just like it's just all hair. We actually we actually had in the play the the uh, the I love you virus. So all the way back then there there were you know significant viruses going around. I don't know if you remember that one, George, but uh, yeah, we actually had the the I love you virus was was in the plot somewhere. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, sharing your your knowledge. Uh, you know, shameless plug, you are our cybersecurity professional, and you'll be updating the course with practical things to do. I, I'd like to say that that course that you created uh, is a body of work that almost serves as a, somewhat of an inoculation against the most common flus running around the internet. And, and thank you for spending your time on that. But how do people find you? How do people help you, Josh? You can find me at roundtabletechnology.com. You can email me at joshua at roundtabletechnology.com. And if you are looking for help with technology, and especially if you're looking for help with cybersecurity to get get your organization in shape for these laws that are coming, please do reach out to us. We would love to talk to you. And we also help nonprofits with pretty much every aspect of technology. Brilliant. And I, I should say you'll have incredible show notes for us uh, to, to join with this podcast. So this is one worth tracking down. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll share those with you right, right after we get off here, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.